got a thing that you want to put up, put it up, but I'm just going to read you instead. Is that okay? Mm. Right, so, and I know this is a bit weird. We're all missing Christmas, right? And I'm about to tell a bit of Lisa's story. <laughs> it's a little bit strange, is it not? But, kind of not really that strange. Because uh, Christmas and Easter are actually really connected. So, I want to talk about the significance of the name of Jesus coming to earth. So when Jesus entered the world as a baby, which is what we're all about to walk into, we're about to celebrate this incredible moment where Jesus is born. We celebrate this incredible birth of the Savior. So you need to realize that what's going on at the time is that things are kind of pretty topsy-turvy for God's people. In fact, they are scattered. They are um, being crushed, they are a lower class citizen, they are slaves, they are not feeling like they are God's chosen people. And in fact, they've had kings that have come in who have just totally taken advantage and smashed them. Like, if you think about someone whose spirit just gets crushed, this is kind of like the people of God in this moment. And so they are crying out, they're like, we need a saviour, we are waiting for the promised one, we need a saviour. And in their mind, they're thinking, a king is going to come in and he is going to rescue us. He's going to, he's going to like be strong, it's going to be battle, it's going to be war, it's going to be army, it's going to overtake the world, set us back to where we need to be and everything's going to be sorted. Right? That's what they're thinking in their mind. And then in enters Jesus. So they're all thinking this is amazing. And as Jesus grows up and he starts to do his ministry, it's completely different to what they thought. Right? But word of his fame is growing He's doing some pretty cool stuff, like massive miracles. Everywhere he goes, he's got a massive crowd following, right? Showing that his name, Jesus, is something to behold. Something incredible is taking place. By the time we kind of hit Mark chapter 11, right? Which traditionally we kind of read into Monday, Thursday and walk into Easter. You've got Jesus entering into the city. And he comes in. So let me read it to you, and I'm just going to tell you the story again, kind of in my own way, and make a couple of observations for you. I am going to move this, trust me, it's okay. So, as they approached Jerusalem and came to, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're doing this, say, the Lord needs it, and... We'll send it back shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus has told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out and had to eat fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say, 
On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. But they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus' disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Jesus replied, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believe that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Pretty big statement, isn't it? Whatever you ask for in prayer, you believe that it is yours. So what we've got going on here, we've got Jesus entering into the city with a bunch of people that are all um, you know, there, and they're crying out Hosanna. Why? Because the king's coming. Jesus' name has been proclaimed. Finally, the scriptures have been fulfilled, and people feel like they're about to get rescued. So, Jesus says to his disciples, of these faithful 12 guys, in fact, more, 72, and, and more again, but these 12 that are following around that are written on here, he's, uh, he's there and he says to them, hey, go, go and get me a ride. Can you imagine? Like, I can imagine, if Jesus said that to me, hey, no, I need you to go and get me a car that we're going to actually go in. I need it to be a convertible, maybe a Mustang, you know, go and grab it. Don't worry, if the owner asks you, just say it's for me, it'll be fine and we'll return it. How do you think they'd go down? Seriously, people, I'm black. Imagine me just going up and stealing a car. And my excuse being, it's okay, it's for Jesus. <laughs> Seriously. So it, it would be pretty awkward. But yet these guys did this. They went and got the cult, they brought it back. And so all of a sudden Jesus goes in and everyone is shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in your eyes. Now I want to put it to you, and if you keep going through this account of Mark's written, the same people that are shouting Hosanna, that are praising the name of Jesus for him coming, that are saying he is our saviour, the one that's going to set us free. In just a few days' time, it's the same crowd that gathers mm. that are shouting crucify him. Now think about that for a moment. How fickle are we as people? The one minute we can be saying he is our king, he is our saviour, name above all names, he is powerful of anything. And then literally in a moment's time, we can be saying, I have no idea who he is, crucifying. He's no one. I mean, that's how fickle we are as people. I mean, I read this and I think, gee, I'm, they're pathetic people, but my friends, it's us. It's you and I that do this. We do it. I do this constantly. It's not okay. It's not okay. So you keep going here. And then I, honestly, I read this and Jesus... What does he do next? He comes in. You can imagine the scene. Crowds, thronging crowds, calling out Hosanna. Then he leaves. It gets late. And literally he walks past and he's hungry. And so he's looking for some food. And he goes over to this fig tree. And because it doesn't have any fruit on it for him to eat, he curses it. 
spends the night, still very hungry, goes back into the temple the next day, and what does he do? Flips over tables, gets really angry, starts shouting at the people, you know, you shouldn't be here, look what you've done. Now, honestly, when I read this, I first looked at it, I'm like, was Jesus just hungry? Did he just need something to eat? If he hadn't eaten, would he have had that reaction? You know, maybe his blood sugars had just dripped and dropped so far down that he just couldn't control himself in his moment. Yeah, but, but I don't think that's it, though. Uh, I reckon when I looked at this passage and I kind of think about how fickle we are as people at times and what the whole idea of this passage was, I came across that end part. That part where he just says, you know what, you, you, my house was supposed to be this house which was a prayer, like a room, a place for the prayers of all nations and instead you turned it into a den of robbers. In other words, it's not what my house, it's not the purpose. It's not what it's being designed for. And you're just ruining it. So anyway, I read this. I remember reading it one day, and I've reflected on this quite a few times in my life. And honestly, I always thought that that last part from verse 22 here, chapter 11, verse 22, it says, Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believe what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you'll receive it and it will be yours. That's what I always thought the purpose of this passage was. I'm like, okay, the name above all names, Jesus, the King of Kings, the one that's the Saviour, the one that has come in to actually rescue us from everything. The whole purpose that I need to do in my life is if I can pray and have enough faith, then I can do anything. I can ask for anything that will happen. So you know what I thought? I'm going to put this to the test. So I said to my lovely wife, hey, we're going to start praying way more. And in fact, we're going to find some big things to pray for. And we're going to actually start saying, hey, um, we're going to stay on this and believe that it's going to happen. So she's like, okay. <laughs> you know, what, what are we praying for? I'm like, I don't know. And she said, oh, okay, well, when you figure it out, let me know. I'm like, yeah, okay. Anyway, about an hour later, my phone dings with a message. And uh, I look at my phone, and it's a friend of mine, like a dear friend. Uh, you know, he's, he's been a mentor in my life for many, many years. He's an older guy, he's a grandfather, beautiful man of God. You know, has spoken into my life time and time again. His family, you know those families that you meet, you're just like, oh my goodness, these families are incredible. Like his, his kids are amazing followers of Jesus. His grandchildren are incredible. They have this spirit about them that you just want to be around them. They're, they're that cool. They kind of just have Jesus oozing out of their paws. Anyway... He sends me a message, and I'm like, excited to send his message. He's like, oh, he's messaging me. I wonder what he wants. And I open it up, and it says, hey, mom, can I get you to pray? Um, my granddaughter, Jemima, who's only seven years old at the time, I've just found out she's got ninja problem. And her brain is swelling at a fast rate of knots. And the doctors are saying if the swelling doesn't go down quickly, uh, she will lose her life in the next 48 hours. So I was shocked reading this text message. I'm thinking, oh my goodness. So I go back over my life and I'm like, I just figured out what we're praying for. In fact, I kind of feel like the whole reason I've been looking at the scripture is because it's for this moment. We need to have enough faith right now. We need to believe it in our hearts without any doubt that God is going to heal Rob's granddaughter tomorrow. We have to believe it. And we've got to start praying and so we started praying fervently. Not only did we start praying, but we just started messaging everyone that we could. And we tie contact, you know, all of them on our phones. You know, one of those send all messages, hey, please pray. Even if you don't know this guy, he's an absolute legend. 
you know, pray for Jemima. She's only seven. She's got an injured cockerel. We need God to do a miracle in our life. We need the swelling to go down. I'm quoting the scripture. You know, have faith. Believe. Believe in your heart that this is going to happen. And I'm already claiming that it's happening tonight. I'm already claiming it. You know, 12 hours goes by and I get another message. And I open it up and I'm, I'm like, my heart's in my chest, pounding away. And it says, hey, my, the prayers are working. The swelling's going down. Keep praying. You know, but, but we're not out of it yet. Keep praying. We, we really need it to really drop. And so I'm like messaging everyone again. It's working. We've got to keep praying. Keep believing. We can do this. We can do this. And I'm praying like crazy. I'm, I'm standing on this scripture. I'm claiming it for all I'm worth. I'm believing that the name of Jesus is above everything else and that nothing else can happen. Literally another 12 hours goes by. My phone rings again. And I open up with this expectancy of like, this is going to be a cool message. God's about to deliver something to do a miraculous thing in our midst. And I open up my phone and I look at it and my heart sank. Because the message read, eat cake and ice cream. Because tonight, Jemima dances with her Lord. She died. She loved cake and ice cream. And the picture they painted in that moment was that their granddaughter was happy in heaven eating cake and ice cream with Jesus. And while that's a beautiful image, I was heartbroken and incredibly angry. I remember sitting there in that moment. I, I was so mad at God, I didn't even know what to say. I was like, why the heck would you lead me to this scripture and have me camp on that verse, have faith in God and truly believe and ask for anything that I want and not deliver? Why would you do that? I was so angry. I, I, I was seriously at the point where I'm like, I don't get you. And I don't care that you know my name. And I don't care how powerful your name is. If you're not going to turn up to me, what's the point? What's the point? It wasn't even a selfish prayer. It wasn't a prayer for me. It was for someone else that I dearly cared about. You know, it's, it's not like I'm sitting there asking for something that was selfish in my heart. I'm sitting there asking for a life of a child. Anyway, while I was spitting at God and being all bitter and angry and wagging my finger at him, I noticed messages coming through from Rob's family, like his kids, who lost their daughter. And their messages were reading things like, Today we give thanks for Jemima, for we only knew her for seven years. But it was seven years we would never, ever give up. Because in that seven years, we saw more of her creator. And we learned more about Jesus than we ever would have without him. Don't mourn, celebrate, because she's been a gift from God. You know, your uncle came out and he was like, I want to remind you that God is still God. His name is above all others. He sits on the throne. He is sovereign. He is king. And today, despite the sorrow in my heart, I give thanks and give glory to his mighty name. Message after message after message in that family came out full of hope, declaration, praise, pointing to the King of Kings, Hosanna in the highest. So I was like, wow, that response is pretty amazing and very unlike my response. 
So I went back to the scripture and I started reading back through it, right? And you know what I noticed? You know what stood out to me more than anything else in this whole passage? You know, apart from the fact that I would feel awkward if Jesus asked me to go and steal a cult, apart from the fact that Jesus got angry, apart from the fact that the crowd is totally fickle and uh, in one breath you're showing Jesus you're amazing and the next they're saying crucifying. That stupid fig tree, light being the little light that has a go red. That fig tree stood out to me. And I started reflecting on it. I was thinking about this fig tree. Because scripture says here that that fig tree, that Jesus was hungry and went looking for food of it. And fascinatingly it says that it wasn't a season for figs. Jesus went looking for fruit on a tree out of season. Out of season. Does anyone else think that's weird? Yeah. Like, if there's no, if it's not fig season, you don't go looking on a tree for figs. And your response out of season shouldn't be, I'm going to curse that tree from ever bearing its fruit. But here's the thing that I feel stuck out to me, my Lord said to me. It's not up to us whether or not we decide we're in season to bear fruit. It's up to God. When Jesus comes looking, it doesn't matter what season you're in. When he comes looking expecting something to be in your life, if it's not there, it's not a good thing. He expects our lives to bear fruit. That's what this looks like. You know, Jesus' name is powerful, absolutely. He knows your name and you are a marvellous creation. In fact, you are a beautiful person with incredible potential. His, his lips speak your name for sure. But oh my goodness, when he speaks it, regardless of whether you feel like it or not, whether you're in season or not, he's expecting to come through. He's expecting to come through. And when I read that, I realised Fruit in that moment for me should have been something that I was pointing to the goodness of God, not doubting, not getting angry. I don't know what fruit looked like in that moment. It was a family struck by grief of losing a seven-year-old child who was still able to stand in worship with her arms held high pointing to the King of Kings. Not once did any of them ever dare utter crucifying. Instead, they all shouted from the rooftops, Hosanna, Hosanna. And you know, I realised something in that moment. I don't want my life to be a life that doesn't bear fruit. I don't want it to be. Because even when Jesus is talking about his temple, what it's made for, you know, it's a house, it's a house for all nations to become and be able to come and pray. Uh, another picture that is designed in this is this idea that your life, your tree of life needs to bear fruit in a way that gives feast to anyone else who comes looking. When they come, if it's just a pretty looking fig tree with nothing, no substance, nothing of worth, then people walk away disappointed. You don't get the luxury to decide when your season is. Jesus demands that your life, because it is already bought by his blood, it is already designed and destined and named and called forth, he has already 
asked you to bear fruit. And fruit that will last. You know, in John 15, it talks about the fact that that God is this incredible vine. You know, Jesus is the vine, and God is the gardener, and we are the branches. And he says, remain in me, I remain in you. And you will produce much fruit. I, I don't want a life that just has a title. I don't want a life that just turns up to camps or church or community like we're supposed to. I, I don't want to have a life that just goes through the motion of doing things and, you know, sings songs and great worship and looks at scripture just for the sake of it with a whole heap of head knowledge but nothing in my heart. I, I don't want that. I don't want a title of reverend. I mean, I don't even use my title of reverend. But I don't, I don't want it if it doesn't mean anything. And neither should you. You know what? Scripture talks about the fact that you're either hot, you're cold, if you're lukewarm, you'll spit your eyes now. You know what that is? That's like, you don't get to decide when you want to be hot or cold. You don't get to just turn up and go through the motions. It's not your choice. And seriously, the fig tree is cursed and split and rotted to its roots with one word of Jesus. I'm telling you right now, you don't want to be that lukewarm person. You don't want to be that fig tree that doesn't bear fruit. You don't want to be that. That shouldn't be your life. Because if it is, it will be a sad place of existence and people won't walk past and admire your beauty as a human being. They'll walk past and think, man, what happened there? Mm-hmm. I, I want to tell you that Jesus' call on your life is extraordinary. And you need to decide you're either in or you're out. Don't walk in the middle. Don't do it. It is so dangerous. You're in and you're in with everything. Well, don't turn up. Because when you come through the motions and you just go through it, I'm telling you, it's a painful, painful process. And it's not good for the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, to actually almost curse your existence, to spit you out of his mouth. This is the depressing thing that we don't get to inside the season that we're in. It's really simple. Plant your roots deep into who Jesus is. Understand your your identity. Understand who you are. Understand that he has called you by name. He knows how many hairs that you have on your head. Or in my case, how many I don't have on my head. He knows. He knew before the very beginning of time exactly who you were and who you were destined to be. And he spoke it into existence. It's why he can call fruit coming out of your life even out of season. Because he knows. It's him who gets to decide the season. I want to say to you guys, be real in your life. Be vulnerable. Be honest about who you are, the struggles you have, what you're actually going through. Because when you're not honest, you do things like you just go through emotions. And things don't land. We all, we all have struggles. We all go through stuff. None of us are perfect. Be honest about that. Be real. Don't build some picture of your life that looks like a magnificent tree and think to to yourself, that's enough. It's not because if it just looks good from the outside but has no substance, has no fruit, it's not enough. Mm. And it will 100% wither and die and you will get found out. Mm. Be willing 
to turn up and actually give your heart to God and say to Jesus, here I am, Master. What do you require of me? What do you need? Let your life be fruit-bearing. Now, I know that's a scary image, right? And, you know, as we think about faith, we think about that mustard seed, the other parable Jesus actually talks about the fact. In fact, he uses it in two instances earlier in Mark. He mentions it once. He talks about the faith, the smallest of faith, like a mustard seed that grows into what? Can anyone tell me what it grows into? A huge tree. Huge tree. Thank you. Huge tree. You know, and it talks about huge tree, branches so big that birds come and rest in it. It talks about that in our personal thing. That's what we need to be. We, we just need faith that much, that small, in order to be able to be these giants. And then he talks about it in the same way. In Mark chapter 4, he talks about the fact that this is the same metaphor he uses for the kingdom of heaven. That the kingdom of heaven is actually made up of people who practice this, who practice this idea of faith so small that it is incredible. Now, you know what? I actually think that Jesus is being almost humorous in this space. I mean, you guys are mostly all from around the part that we're talking about this Bible in Britain. Can you tell me, has anyone ever seen a mustard tree? Anyone? You know what it looks like? Maybe at its very best, if you really let it go rough, about this tall. You know, its branches maybe as thick as my finger. The birds that actually come and rest on it are like this big, they're tiny. And you would be forgiven for if you had a field with a mustard tree growing in it, you would be forgiven for thinking it was a weed and ripping it out of the ground too early and chucking it onto the fire. Because it is ugly. It does not look like much. You know, I don't know about you, but here's the thing that I find comforting about that. Big trees are beautiful, right? They are. They have this beautiful thing with beautiful leaves and this amazing fruit. And so when I look at my life and I'm like, oh my goodness, I need to, my life needs to look good. Sometimes that can be really daunting. You know, I, sometimes I'm like, well, what, if, what if it's not good? What if my life actually doesn't look that great? What if I can't turn up and do that? That's a lot of pressure. How can I do that? But Jesus is using this incredible metaphor around a mustard tree, mustard plant, really, a bush, to encourage us because it's almost like saying your life, even in the most barren of moments in your life, could you possibly imagine that just maybe something could spring up that looks pretty weird? And the answer is, yeah, I could. I could imagine that something could grow, a weed could grow out of there. It may not look like much, but it's something. And you know, I'm okay with that. If that's where my faith sits, that it's something, I'm okay. And I think that that's all Jesus requires. That's all he's expecting. So when he's looking for fruit from me, you know what it comes from? It's not this, be a magnificent tree, be this beast of a thing that everyone can look at and in awe of and go, wow, that's amazing. As an individual, no. He's saying, as an individual, the only thing I require of you is to, is to kind of look like a weed. And, and that's okay. Because here's the thing, when he starts talking about the kingdom of heaven, when he starts talking about his house being a, a feast for the nations of prayer, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about his people. Individually, we may look like pretty, weedy, rubbish 
mustard plants, but collectively, together, as we all lean into this space, oh my goodness, we are something to behold. When Jesus' name is on our lips together, look out. The kingdom of God grows like you wouldn't believe. Those big trees start to look more and more beautiful. And guess what? We get to cover each other in that moment. And instead of it just being this moment where all of a sudden you are expected to bear incredible fruit, you can get covered by other people in your community. It, it, that is the gift of being in this space. But you know what it takes? It takes this absolute dogged notion to say, I'm in. I'm in with everything. I'm totally, 100%. Now, I want to give you that opportunity tonight. I don't know where you're sitting. I don't know what you've been doing. But I, I can hazard a guess. In fact, probably more than a guess. I get the sense that some of you guys, you're living in massive guilt. Right now, there's things that you've been covering up, you've been hiding, you've been thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, if people only knew what was really going on in my life, they wouldn't even let me hang out. You, you've been sitting in that space and you've been beating yourself up and I want to tell you that Jesus knows. He's already forgiven you. It's already done. He's already slaughtered it. And he's just waiting for you to forgive yourself. Mm. There's people here tonight that I'm pretty positive that actually you literally have just been going through the motions. You know, and if you didn't have like the expectations of your family, if you didn't have friends here, there's probably no way you'd actually turn up here. You, you, you're probably turning up and thinking to yourself, oh, here we go. I'll make the best of it. But actually, I'm not 100% sure I want to be. And I want to say to you tonight, you know what, choose Jesus. Choose Jesus. Because when you step into that space, that relationship with him, it changes everything. That attitude that you carry, that, that sense, that knot in your stomach, that almost uncomfortable thing that you have that you're like, oh, what am I doing? That all disappears. Because all of a sudden, it's like everything aligns and your purpose and reason and identity all start to shape and turn up for you in a way that just starts helping you understand life and life to the Alright, Shady made a really good point. I'm not going to invite you to do anything without first explaining what I'm inviting you to do. I was thinking about how I describe the good news of Jesus to you all. I'm sure you've all heard many times, but I want to tell you again. And the best way I can think of to do this is to actually share a story, a real story. A very dear friend of mine. So, this story started a few years ago. A friend of mine called Gary. Total legend of a bloke. Grew up in America, had a real heart for Arab nations. Huge heart for it. Went to Bible college, decided I'm going to study like crazy. I'm going to learn Arabic. I'm going to learn. In fact, I think he speaks about seven different languages all from around that region. He's like, I'm going to learn them all. I'm going to turn up and I want to be able to actually talk about the power of Jesus and, and who he is. And I, you know, when I met him, I'm just like, I'm like, you are amazing. And in fact, funny story, we went out for dinner one day and we were, we were actually in, um, in Dubai. We went to this amazing restaurant, we were sitting there, and we were eating, and the guy comes over and he starts speaking over to me. And I'm like, well, I don't know what saying. And then Gary pipes up this white guy and starts just screwing me back, you know, all his stuff. And, they all laugh because he's like the one guy at the table that looks like he should be able to speak you know, Arabic, can't speak it, and the white guy can. So it was very funny. Anyway, I digress. The 
very, um, very story in simply this. When he was uh, so focused on, you know, this one single goal of his life counting for something, making the knowledge really actually going there and just, you know, declaring who Jesus was. Right in the midst of study, he meets the love of his life and he's totally bowled over. You know, bowled. It's literally like they were made for each other. The two of them had this single goal that they wanted to be able to do this. And, and literally, in like the space of 12 months, straight up to college, boom, they got married. And they started getting all their stuff in order to, to go. They wanted to be able to go and serve in this Arabic nation. So finally, something opens up for them and they're able to go to Lebanon. And they, uh, they rock into Lebanon right at a time, and this is a few years ago now, this is right before 9-11 occurs, right, the year before. And uh, they rock into Lebanon, and, and Bonnie is this amazing midwife, right? So she's there to be able to, to help people, help, you know, deliver babies and, and help care for these little kids and stuff. And, and, you know, at that moment in time, in the space they went into, they had a problem with, uh, with women feeling shame about stuff that were often, you know, falling pregnant, and often it's from a family member, so... It was just very awkward, and so the only option they kind of felt was like to abort the baby. And in that moment, when they're thinking about aborting babies, they're doing it in the backyard way, none of it's helpful, none of it's healthy. So these guys came up with this idea that they were going to put this clinic in, and they were going to help, you know, bring these girls in that were young, and they'd help, they'd look after them, they'd almost keep them in hiding for a bit, they'd help them have their babies, help them rehome them, and then help them re-engage their community with no shame. Right? So it was, a, it was a beautiful thing they were doing. In the process, they wanted to really be Jesus to these people. So they were there, they were you know, trying to get themselves settled and everything was good. They were working crazy hours and, and they were helping these young girls and helping families and communities and, and it was incredible. But they were being watched. And uh, the community, there were certain members of the community that did not like what they were doing. These Muslim guys did not like what these guys were doing at all. And uh, one day, Gary decided, you know what, I've, I've just worked like two weeks in a row, I need to just take time off. So he takes time off and he, he sleeps in that morning and Bonnie gets up and she kisses him goodbye and says, I've got to go to the clinic. Someone's made an early appointment for me. I have to turn up and, and meet this, this young girl. So Gary's like, no problems, you know, let me know when you're coming back. She says, yeah, crap. So he dozes back to sleep. You know that, that moment where you're kind of like half between sleep, half awake and... You know, you don't really know what's going on. All of a sudden, in that bit of a daze, the phone rings. And he kind of scrambles up, scrambles up and picks up the phone. And he's like, hello. And as he picks it up, he hears one of the nurses from the clinic. And she says, Gary, Gary, you have to come right now. You have to come quick. Something's happened. And so he's, like in this daze, he puts down the phone and he's thinking to himself, oh, my goodness, what's happening? He's scrambling, he's throwing on clothes, he's grabbing his wallet, he runs out, he hails down a taxi, jumps in the taxi. Now, it was only like, you know, three or four blocks from their home, but it's Lebanon, right? So it's not, not quick. And they get as close as they kind of can, and then the taxi driver says, hey, I need to get petrol. So he pulls in, Gary grabs some stuff, throws some money at him, and sprints the rest of the way. And as he rounds the corner into the street where the clinic is, you know, it's up like four flights of stairs. He notices that there are just police everywhere. There's military arrived as well. He's like thinking to himself, oh my goodness, what has happened? He runs up the stairs. He pushes past the, the policeman who's right there. Pushes past and says, I have to get up. That's my wife up there. I have to go see. And as he runs right up to the top of the stairs, he gets to the very top 
and he peers into the clinic. And just as he does, a policeman comes in and tackles him into the open doorway and he lies on the floor, weeping, because what he's seen in his mind, in his head, as he's gone through, is his wife's body lying in the room in a pool of blood. Gary wept on the floor as the policeman explained that that morning when Bonnie came to the clinic to, to make her appointment, she got set up, everything was fine, and there was a knock on the door. And when she opened the door, a masked man shot her in cold blood with blood. And the nurse came in and found her body. I, when Gary was telling me this, I, I didn't know how to react. Apart from giving him this big hug. And he said, Nadia, in that moment, he said, I was lying on the floor and I remember something went off in my head. It was the voice of God saying, Gary, in this moment you can choose one of two things. You can choose bitterness, where your heart goes hard, and you carry this attitude around with you, and I'll show you where it leads. It'll be like a withered fig tree that will never bear any fruit. Or you can choose to forgive the person who has just murdered your wife. And I will have you doing the most incredible things in my name to these people. A few days later, there was this almighty, almighty funeral service. And uh, CNN had picked it up. You know, at that point, 9-11 had just happened. You know, in, in between this whole season, it just happened. So CNN's there. We've got media coverage all over the place. The US are picking it up. They're, you know, these guys are US nationals. So it's being picked up. It's on the news. It's all over the place. And uh, so there's news cameras everywhere. And there's this funeral, and Gary gets up, and he looks down the barrel of the camera. You could have had a pin drop in the room. And he says, to the people that murdered my wife, I want you to know, I love you, and I forgive you. And for the next 30, years, 30 minutes, he shared the good news of Jesus. And that was the most incredible thing ever. And today, Gary stood ministering in and out of the hearts of the Middle East. You know, I remember sitting there that night after he shared, I, I put my hand on the pillow and I was lying there and I was just like, man, I, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could forgive like Gary did. And I, I remember saying to God, I, if, if someone murdered my wife once I went and cold blood like that and I found a body, I don't think I could just so quickly and easily forget and gloss over and move on. And you know what God said to me as I was trying to get to sleep? He said, Noddy, you're putting yourself in the wrong shoes in that story. And I'm like, what? He said, you're, you're not Gary in the story. And I said, well, if I'm not Gary, who am I? He said, my child, you're the assassin. I was like, what? He's like, you are the assassin. took ages for it to sink in. I'm like, what are you saying? And then I've got this most amazing picture, and this is where 
the gospel comes in. He said, Lonnie, I sent my only son to this earth. I only had one. I loved him more than anything else. I named him special name. And I've destined him for one purpose alone. And he came to this earth. And you spat on him. You denied him. You whipped him. You flogged him. You treated him like a criminal. You nailed him to a cross. You jeered at him as he breathed his last. He was so hurt and so broken in that moment. He asked me why I'd forsaken him. And then he breathed his last. And he died. And all of heaven looked at me to see what my response would be. And I looked back at them and I said, I love him and I forgive him. That's why you're here, Sassy. Because I have forgiven you. I have given you everything. And I've done it with you in mind. When God said that to me, I just had this realisation, this incredible realisation. And my friends, that is what the gospel is. The gospel is the fact that God has given everything for you. Not only has he brought you into this world, but in the brokenness and the free will that he's given you, he's given you a way out with Jesus. Jesus gave up everything. Gave it all for you. When he breathed his last, your name was on his lips. When he came back to life, constantly, he says your name back to his bones so that you are seen through the lens of what he has done. When I ask you to choose to be all in, it's for this simple fact that actually God doesn't owe you anything else in life. If he doesn't do one more thing for you, he's already done enough. You owe him everything. Everything. It's why it's up to him when your life is supposed to be free. 